This morning's scripture reading will come from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It'll be 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Good morning. Glad to be here. Always appreciate the opportunity the elders give me to uh, speak. Um, being a full-time minister for over 30 years and regularly preaching every Sunday, it's nice to uh, be in the pulpit and share a message from God's word. So thank you, elders, for the opportunity. I was trying to think of what um, I'd like really to present, and, and this lesson today has had several um, uh, segments over a period of time and, and working out and fleshing out because I think these things represent to me the principles that I like to follow. At least they guide me in my behavior as I interact with people. And they stem from the idea of the question, what, what about Jesus is so compelling? We could probably talk about uh, the, the miracle worker and the authority that Jesus had. People were impressed with that. In fact, on one occasion, the apostles, when Jesus calmed a storm, they were sort of frightened at that event. And then they made the comment, who is this that's able to calm the seas and the wind? How come these things obey his voice? And you would think that they would know that, but there is a perception about Jesus that's pretty ominous that they were terrified on that occasion. I think again of how people reacted to Jesus' teaching. After he completed the Sermon on the Mount, you remember that the people were so impressed and amazed at his teachings because he taught in a totally different way, not according to what they were accustomed to when they received teaching from the scribes and the Pharisees. And then you have that great Sermon on the Mount and that introduction section that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and begins to list all these uh, wonderful traits that we as God's people ought to have and possess. It's a wonderful sermon and it provides an ethical foundation for all of us to live by. And so I had several opportunities to think about and contemplate, but there's been something on my mind for several years that I think that has impacted me in a way that um, uh, I wish to express this morning, and I hope it'll be somewhat of a model for you. Walking with Jesus is a very challenging thing. It's, uh, it's not easy, particularly when I find myself to be more selfish than I am selfless. To walk with Jesus requires me throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month and years to contemplate how does Jesus model the way. If I could reduce it to some principles that can serve as benchmarks, some principles that could serve as readily uh, assimilated ideas, as I navigate uh, on this planet, as I interact with people, at least these four things, I think, would, would resonate with you 
as they have done with me. It sort of uh, simplifies the nature of Christianity, but it's, it's not simplification in the depth of what I'm going to share, but it's uh, simple to really understand and to commit to. Jesus is one of the most, well, I would say he is the most unique figure in human history. This is why he continues to be a person of curiosity uh, by those who are in all kinds of fields. They study his teachings. They study his life. There's controversy always around this uh, study of the historical Jesus. And it's simply because he is real. He is divine. And that poses a problem. Think about the way the New Testament talks about him for a minute. There's, there's designations to talk about the, the dual nature of who Jesus is. He's called the Son of Man. I understand that. There's a relationship to humanity that also has some prophetic connotations, Messiah connotations to it. But Son of Man, okay. He's also Son of God. How do these two things melt together? How are they assimilate? How do they come together? I don't totally understand it, but I do see him as the one who is both God and man, both God and human. This is what John tells us when we begin talking about the gospel of John and his presentation of who Jesus is. In John chapter 1, verse 1, notice what the first verse says. In the beginning was the word. Any Jewish reader, any person familiar with the Old Testament would immediately go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's John doing? John is connecting in the beginning was the word with the God in the beginning who created all things. That's an amazing contemplation. And so I want to go to Genesis chapter 1 for a second. When we read that God created the heavens and the earth, and that when God spoke, let there be light, light came into existence, I can assure you I'm impressed with that power. I don't understand it. I cannot relate to it. God is too far beyond my comprehension. I cannot. He's transcendent. There's nothing that I understand about this God except that he can wield power and bring things out of nothing into existence, like Genesis chapter 1 says. This is why there's a word that's used in Genesis 1 in Hebrew called Elohim. It's translated God in Genesis chapter 1 because Elohim is the sovereign created God. Elohim creates. Nobody else can create except God. So that's good to know. <laughs> I accept the fact that God created things, but I don't understand a God like that, do you? Can you wrap your head around that? I mean, I've gotten interested in looking at the stars and the planets. I see Venus come up. I see uh, Jupiter. I see Saturn. I see, I see Mars. I see the star Arcturus. Other things come into view, the constellations. I'm fascinated because it points to something that is so beyond me when we peer into the universe and this God, this God brings it all into being. You don't understand him. And I don't either. But we come to Genesis chapter 2. Something happens. We have an explanation of the sixth day. Where we find a more intimate relationship. We see God who um, creates human beings. Uh, he creates a place for them. He creates marriage. And interestingly enough, there's another divine name that's used in Genesis 2. 
It's the Lord God in your translation. It's probably lowercase capital letters, Lord. The word Lord there is where we get um, Yahweh, Jehovah. It's God's covenant name. It's his covenant name. And so in Genesis 2, we have Lord God who begins to interact with his creation. And he, he sort of reveals himself. He downsizes himself in a sense of coming to our level of understanding. And we see God walking in the cool of the day, having fellowship with his creation. Now, I could start to understand that kind of God because he's a little bit closer to me. He's not so out there. He's now a little bit more intimate. And see, that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. This powerful God has now come to the level of our appreciation and understanding and fellowship. John does the same thing in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. I don't understand that word because he's too far beyond me. He existed. You see, all things came through him. There's the transcendent, incomprehensible God, the God whose wisdom is so far beyond us, we cannot even contemplate it. But then in verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the word, this God, became flesh, incarnation, the, the, the coming of this transcendent God, sovereign God, into human form that now John would say in 1 John chapter 1 that we beheld him with our own eyes. We handled him as the word of life. We witnessed who this individual is, and we had a relationship with him. See, this is God that's being spoken here. What does all of this mean in my navigation in life? To me, this is what it means that God has made himself available to us. God and Jesus, in Jesus, God is available. He is available, and we as his people must learn, likewise, to be available. Think about that for just a minute. John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with the two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. That word behold is descriptive of the immediacy of the thing. He's saying, look, look right here. You can see the Lamb of God. Who is the Lamb of God? He's Son of God. He's Son of Man. He's Lamb of God. This is God incarnate. Here he is walking. You can see him walk. I don't know if that uh, impresses you any, that God's walking on the planet. He's walking in Palestine. He's walking there so people can actually see this God. Who he is. But he only he says this also. We beheld him as the Lamb of God. And verse 38 says, And Jesus turned when some disciples started to follow him. Jesus turned and said to them, What do you speak or seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to him, Why do you want to know? He didn't say that, did he? Did he say, let me check my calendar? Did he say, I'm really too busy doing mighty deeds, God things? 
And for your information, I do not have the time for you. That's not what he said at all, is it? He said, come and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour, 10 o'clock, using Roman time here in the Gospel of John. They were with him for an entire day. Now, who is this? In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. All things came through him. And nothing that we see came to existence without his power. And this Word became flesh. We see him. We saw him. We stayed with him. We communed with him. We talked with him. And guess what? He also noticed me. He noticed us. He had time for two disciples to spend a day with. When you look in the Gospel of John, he interacts with all kinds of people, individuals, groups of people, pairs of people. This is God taking time out of his divine calendar, if you please, of activities, of things that are important, showing me what really is important, and that is the time I give to others. Isn't that incredible? It's sort of fascinating to me to contemplate that because in the availability of Jesus, if I'm going to emulate and model his life, I'm going to be available to others as well. Now, let me tell you the risks that are involved. Availability means that you surrender a lot of your self-interest and selfishness because when people need you, it may not be convenient it may not be on your calendar. You cannot determine the times that people will need you. You must be available. That's one of the things that I've learned from Jesus that sort of has challenged my selfishness because I'm very selfish. I want to guard my calendar. I have things I like to do that I don't want interrupted. <laughs> you know, uh, there are um, activities that I enjoy, and, and to miss those activities is sort of a disappointment. Really, I got to spend time with you when I could be doing this. I've got to learn to shed that selfishness if I'm going to walk like Jesus. We cannot profess to be spiritually alive but personally unavailable. When I was growing up, there was a uh, friend of my brother's who is five years older than I am. Every Christmas, uh, he would come over and stay the day. And we were always wondering, don't you have a home to go to? Don't you have somewhere to go? This is Christmas Day. And um, we decided as a family that we would hold off opening Christmas gifts that morning to Sunday, I mean to the, to the evening. And so that's where our family tradition began of opening gifts uh, in Christmas Day evening. And we felt like, you know, at that time, we're probably the only ones that are doing that, so we have our gifts still to enjoy. And when I have thought about this in reference to what Jesus says here, I can remember when he showed up, we all dreaded it because we knew that he would be with us for the day. We, we weren't as so cold to turn him away. We just kind of tolerated, and we were kind of looking at time. I hope he leaves. I hope he leaves. And as soon as he left, we would shut the door, see him gone, and then we would have our Christmas morning, but it would be in the evening. I got to thinking about that, and it bothers me the way that we were. 
What we should have done was to include him on our Sunday night Christmas opening package time or in our Sunday morning. Why was he at our house anyway? Obviously, he had nowhere to go. Obviously, there was something awry in his family or he would be home on Christmas Day, right? But he showed up every year. I think of the uh, missed opportunities when I contemplate growing up now since I'm a Christian and realize, you know, that could have been a great opportunity to be available for someone in a less selfish way. Would it not? Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't think you need to draw a number to wait in line to draw near in confidence to speak to God. Do you? God's available. He has illustrated that in Jesus. He has illustrated that in his fellowship with human beings and his receptivity of wanting to help us, to instruct us, and alleviate our needs. Very powerful. Jesus was and continues to be available. Secondly, John chapter 1, verse 37. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? Now, this is a different emphasis on a verse that we just looked at. <clears throat> I find it kind of interesting. I know, I know Jesus is God, and he, he knows what's in a person before they even know it. You know, he's, he's the Son of God. There's something about him being God that he knows things that we don't know. But I don't think that's all that's being said here. I think Jesus is also a person that is a, a, a God, the Word become flesh, that knows people. And he is attuned to people. That he, he knows what they're thinking. He knows by the signals that they send what they're saying as well. It's kind of interesting being a preacher or a speaker, you know, because you have an audience and when you... When you you know, do your eyes across the uh, auditorium, you can see different things happening. Some people are doing other things. Some people are looking. Some people are, are, are laughing. Some people are, you know, whatever. I mean, I see it all. It's all right there. It's kind of like uh, uh, signals. I can tell when it's sermons becoming too long. Of course, preachers don't pay attention to that. But I can tell in the faces when things are going a little bit too long or I lost the audience. So I got to back up again and make sure you got it. All of that's coming on. Uh, those are things that you, you can tell when you're speaking. The most interesting thing that ever happened to me when I was speaking on a Sunday evening at a church, and um, it was, um, I don't recall if it was a meeting or, or what, but I do remember the incident. I, I cannot forget it. But this lady was on the second pew, and uh, during my sermon, she put her foot, she took off her shoe and put her bare foot on the, on the back of the pew in front of her, got her toenail clippers, and started clipping her toenails. I was preaching, and I could see the toenails flying up. That was strange. That happened right in front of me. I didn't say anything. I just went on preaching. Everybody was looking at her, you know. But strange things happen, you know, in the pew while someone's speaking and preaching. 
The point of all of this is that Jesus knew two individuals were behind him. You ever had that feeling that someone's behind you? He knew they're behind. Then he turned. He said, "What are you seeking?" You ever thought that you know that someone wants to ask you a question or that someone's interested in something, and and you can pick up on those cues, those signals that they send, right? All of that has to do with this principle of Jesus and his interactions. He is, and we must be always aware of what's around us. We have to be aware. But sometimes we're not aware. I'm not aware sometimes. People are giving us signals all the time. Look at John chapter 1, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile or deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's a lot in that that phrase, I saw you. It's not that he just saw him, but he knew him. He knew him. And Nathaniel was so impressed with that. My Lord, my God, you know. And you think that's impressive, you wait until you become one of my disciples. I think the principle there is very valid for us. That as Jesus knows what's in human beings, I think as God's people, if we're going to be people who belong to him and walk with him we are going to know people too we're going to be aware we're going to pick up on these subtle signals that they send be the kind of person who picks up on these subtle signals be the kind of person who responds to them not ignoring them when I was um, uh, at a place sitting listening to a speaker one time everything was over and I was up front and um, the service was over, and an individual came down, and uh, we're on the pew where I was, and he put out his hand, and I went to shake it. He took my hand, and he flung me out of the way. That was the first time in my life I ever wanted to punch a brother in Christ. The first time. It made me angry and mad. He just took my hand. I was going to shake it, talk to him. He, he got me out of the way, and he went right for the person next to me to shake his hand and talk to him. I was just in the way. I was an obstacle. And at first I was mad and angry, you know. Um, and then I was kind of sad. He didn't, he, he wasn't aware of me, or at least the only awareness that he had for me was that I was in his way. <laughs> and I got to thinking, as a, as a Christian, as a dean, as a preacher, have I given that feeling to others? Have I ever made people feel that I don't notice them? That I won't take time for them? That I'm not aware? You can focus on a lot of things, but keep your peripheral vision always open. That's where you see action, activity, you know, movement. You can tell a lot of things about people in their faces, in their body uh, expressions, all that they're doing. And sometimes it's just a matter of saying, um, is anything bothering you? They may say no, but they may say yes and appreciate the interest. And so as I navigate and interact with people today, I'm trying to be more aware. The third thing about Jesus, and this is probably one of the most interesting things, and it shouldn't be interesting, uh, it shouldn't be challenging, but that is Jesus was 
and he is always helpful. Helpful. Helpfulness is the foundation to Christianity. Everyone can be helpful. A helpful person models the life of Jesus. Well, how do you, how do you know what helpfulness is? Here's another way of looking at it. When Jesus um, um, died, of course, uh, he selected his disciples, and then the disciples began to evangelize and go speak. And we have the episode of Peter going to the household of Cornelius. And he said something about Jesus that's inspiring to me. He says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Okay, I know that. I appreciate that. Holy Spirit and power. Yes, talk about the Holy Spirit and power. But he says he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. What do people do if they're with God? They go around doing good. They go around doing good. As I walk with God, I have to evaluate my life. Look at it. Am I the one who is helpful, doing good, seeking to assist, seeking to alleviate, seeking to do God's will? That's, a, that's an action of commitment that's not always easy to do. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, and be kind to one another. Is that good, to be kind to one another? Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I think the most noble and the most courageous act that you can do is to do good. Now, we, we think about noble and courageous things, but... If Jesus' life was characterized by going about doing good, don't you know that he was being helpful wherever he went? Not murmuring, not complaining, not criticizing, not destroying, not dividing, but uniting, assisting, alleviating, forgiving, helping. That's what's good. I remember in John chapter 2 when a a family was about to get embarrassed because the wine ran at, ran out on the banquet they were given. And you remember Jesus' mother coming to him and said, uh, they run out of wine. And Jesus went ahead, took the initiative, and began to do things in the background. And he made plenty for the host and for the family, saving the embarrassment of that family who was hosting that wedding gathering that usually lasted for a week. The only people that knew about that was his disciples, his mother, and the attendants that he told to go get jars, fill them with water, and he turned it to wine. No one else knew about it. No one else knew about it. And it's, it's interesting to me that he seems to have done this in the background without any notoriety, without anything um, to say, hey, look at me. He just did it, and he helped a family, and he glorified the Father. And guess what? His disciples came to believe in him even more. They saw Jesus in a different way because he's being helpful. First Peter 2 and verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain yourself from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Live such good lives among the 
pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that you may, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we desire to glorify God, then we'll become signs that point to Jesus. What does a sign do? It doesn't glorify you. It doesn't glorify the sign. The sign points to something beyond it. So if we are people connected with Jesus, walking with him, we're naturally will be a sign that points beyond us to something else. And finally, Jesus was and he is creative. Creative. You ever notice the many questions that Jesus asks? And, and John, there's a lot of them. I just got a sampling here. What do you seek? Um, what uh, do not want to go away? Also, do you, says, do you believe in the Son of Man? I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And it goes on and on and on. So asking questions is one of the best ways to engage people. One of the most creative ways to open conversations. Uh, I served uh, at a congregation with a dear elder, um, a personal friend and a brother I loved. Um, I performed his funeral several years ago. He had a question everywhere he went, doctor's office, pumping gas. He saw someone. He said, do you have a church home? That's all he said. And he kept me full with Bible studies every week. We baptized so many people just because he opened door. He, he'd ask the question, and, it would, you know, he would begin to engage them. And then, sure enough, he'd call, and I and I say, you got me another Bible study, Earl? And he said, yes. How does Tuesday at 7 sound? And I was full because of what he did. He got the studies, and I studied with the people just because that one question that he was famous for. Do you have a church home? I think God likes to raise curiosity. Think with me in Acts chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, day of Pentecost. Remember the Holy Spirit rushing uh, in the wind uh, and then the tongues of fire on the head and all that? What was it that the people said in response to all of this? What is this? That was the question that God wanted them to ask. And so Peter steps up and says, this is that. I don't know if people are asking that question of us, is my life so live for God that it becomes an object of curiosity? It will. The closer you are with God, the more you walk with and the more you learn, you become so different from everything around you that you are a oddity. <laughs> Someone, you're curious. God forbid they call us weird. But we are a little odd compared to the world's values. Listen to 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation, holy, a people for his own possession. King James uses a peculiar people. I'm using that intentionally in two ways. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Back during the King James Day, peculiar just meant someone owned by another, distinctive, okay? Our 
peculiarity. Our word peculiar means odd, (laughs) weird, out of the norm. But I got to thinking about this. Our effectiveness as Christians rises according to the degree of our peculiarity. Does it not? Are we creative enough? Do we think about how we can raise curiosity? Is our life of such that we're so welded to Jesus that we are becoming more like him? And as we become more like him, there is something peculiar about us because we are his peculiar people, his own people. And so these four things to me are have become very, very precious principles to be available, to be aware, to be the person who's helpful, and to be the person that's creative. My creativity just only rises the closer I walk with my Lord because my life becomes very creative and curious to others. We have a song selected for your invitation for anybody who wishes to uh, begin walking that walk with Christ. We want to encourage you in the singing of the song to make that known and become a disciple of Jesus. Uh, It could be that uh, you're desiring prayers and the church is here to assist in any way while we stand and sing.